0: All right. Check out your Bibles tonight. Again, to Revelation chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 12. Take it through verse 17. And here we find the third church, the fourth in our series tonight of the churches of Revelation. These pictures of church history, these pictures of the church practically these pictures of the church perennially and prophetically. As we look at this church tonight, we're going to see a very specific group, and I'm going to comment on it in a minute. But I want to remind you, and I think it's really important that we as the body of Christ remember this, Uh, Christians come in all flavors and shapes and sizes and denominations. And you can go through virtually every Christian group on the earth and you can find people who are genuinely believers in Christ and you can find people who are posers, pretenders, fakes, charlatans. You, You could take some Calvary chapels and go through the congregation. You're going to find people who pretend to be Christians who are not. And so when we make mention of specific groups, it's extremely important to remember that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, that we are saved by grace and through faith, that faith is in Jesus Christ alone. And so please don't extrapolate what I say into a larger picture than I intend it. Uh, There are very, very wonderful, saved, beautiful Christians uh, that maybe even belong to groups that we might label cults, but it's because they have a personal faith in Jesus Christ alone through faith. It may not be the teachings of the church that got them there. So remember that as we say what needs to be said, because we must teach what Scripture says And when we do that, the the Bible teaches an exclusive doctrine, not an inclusive doctrine. You cannot call someone who is strictly, by the definition of the Mormon church, a Mormon. You cannot instantaneously call them a brother or sister in Christ, because they are a Mormon. That would make them excluded from God's plan of salvation if that's their definition. If their definition is that they believe in faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, then by definition they have a biblical saving faith in the one and only Savior. Now, you're not going to find many Mormons that will tell you that. Very, very few. But keep salvation an issue between one person's heart and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody got that? It's important. Because we must make distinctions. If there is a false or heretical doctrine, it's my job as a pastor to bring it to light. But it never excludes the work of the Holy Spirit in any individual's life. And it does not mean that there couldn't be someone who's saved in a church that might have really horrible doctrine. Keep that in view. Tonight, the third church, the papal church, and of course when we say papal church, there's probably nobody in here who does not know what's coming next, because there's one church in the entire world that has a pope, and so... Tonight, this picture, especially of the papal church of the Middle Ages, very specifically, but to some degree surviving to our day and our time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word written to John in this cave on the island of Patmos that declares to us, you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit, by Your power, would come. Minister to us in truth, Lord, as we study Your Word. We give You this time tonight, and we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 12 here in Revelation 2, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now remember that throughout Scripture, and very specifically the book of Hebrews, of course, but very uh, universally one of the titles for the word of God is the sword. It's used that way uh, certainly in the book of Ephesians in describing our armor. It's used that way in the book of Hebrews. And here it is used again uh, as a sword, a two-edged sword. Uh, It cuts between joint and marrow. It gets down to the very Uh, sinews of truth. And so it's giving a picture here to begin with that uh, this is a judgment of and by the Word of God. And it is in fact the Word of God that always judges all things having to do with the real church. And when I say real church, that's every member of it no matter where they happen to go to church. Make that differentiation. People are... By the Word, faith comes. Amen? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's what we're hearing when we hear the Word of God. That is a sharp sword, and it is what cuts through all the other stuff. So when we go to find out what doctrine is real and what doctrine is false, we turn to the Word of God. Amen? We don't turn to the teachings of a man, we turn to the Word of God. It is the Word that judges, it's the Word that cuts, it's the Word that divides, it is the Word itself that speaks to all things in the manner of life and godliness that we live in Christ Jesus. So if you can back it up with the Word in context, rightly interpreted, then that becomes truth. If you cannot back it up with the Word, if there is a doctrinal bent that someone holds, that is counter to the word, that doctrine by the Bible's definition is false doctrine. If somebody comes to you and they give you something, and you go, well, show me where that is. And you look, and it's not there. And they continue on this path, well, I just believe that man is the center of the universe. Uh, That's not taught in Scripture. The exact opposite is taught in Scripture. So when someone comes to you and says, I believe in a secular humanist doctrine that allows for many gods there is one lord one faith one hope one baptism there's one lord that is lord of all there's exactly one there aren't many and so you can at that point in time say look the word of god has been taken out and it has divided this and the truth of the matter is you're wrong What you believe is false doctrine. And you can do that with a measure of boldness because you have God's word on it. Not because man says so, not because you read it in some book by some apologist, but God himself spoke that through the Holy Spirit to men of old. They jotted it down, and we now have it as the final word, the final authority. I know your works and where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Not a place that you want to hang out for very long. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Notice whose faith it is. It's not faith in faith. It's not some ethereal thing. It's faith in the Lord himself. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, please discern the difference between this Antipas, which is a name, And Herod Antipas, which was the title, was the name of one of the Herods. This is the one and only time this Antipas is mentioned. And so he was a martyr at the church at Pergamos. And this is the record of his deed. Who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because there are those who have held to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And thus you have also those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. so this was a doctrinally messed up city. There were two principal false doctrines, and we'll get to both of them tonight. One, the doctrine of Balaam. Two, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which I hate. Again, remember, your hateometer is supposed to go off occasionally. And we're hating false doctrine. We're not hating people who hold false doctrine. We're hating what God hates, which is the false doctrine. When it gets to those who perpetrate false doctrine, we are also to try and change them if they will not change. They go in the category of Satan's emissaries. They also are open for that divine dislike. I like to call it. we, We cannot stand with those who preach false doctrine. That's why you're never going to find somebody at the Mormon church preaching a message from this pulpit. Because their doctrine is false. They're heretical. They are largely heretics. They are not Christians. And I can call them so because my Bible says so. However, when you meet an individual Mormon on the street, You need to be kind and share Christ with them, the real Jesus, not Lucifer's brother. Amen? Big difference between hating false doctrine and hating a person who may need to have their doctrine helped out a bit with the truth. Repent. Again, not a word the church preaches much anymore. Repent. Repent. Turn around, do a 180, get a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of action. That's what repent means. Repentance is not just simply acknowledging you're wrong. Do not confuse repentance with sorrow. People are sorry about a lot of things, but that does not mean they're repentant. Repentance means that you have turned the opposite direction from whence you have come or else I will come to you quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so Jesus lets us know in one fell swoop, writing to this church that is surrounded by false doctrine, that not only does he hate the false doctrine, but he will fight against those who preach it. The church needs to have that kind of boldness. It's time the church wakes up, and stops caving in to false doctrine, very specifically these two doctrinal bents that are mentioned here. Because one of them is the syncretism that we've already talked about in our last study. It's the joining together of anything in Jesus. Jesus alone is God. But joining Him to Buddha, or Allah, or all roads lead to heaven, is not solid, sound doctrine. It leads to error, which leads people to hell. I'll fight against them. And he goes on in verse 17, the final verse in our passage tonight, For he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, again, plural, underline it, Not the one church, all churches. Every last church is forced to deal with false doctrine, and very specifically these two false doctrines. We must not isolate this to the practical, which was then, the singular church of Pergamos some 2,000 years ago. We we have to look at this not as a period only in church history, but a very grave potential in the church today. Right doctrine is essential for right living. Right living is a command of real Christians. People who do not put their faith into action have little claim to the blood of Christ. We we must live out our faith. Because if we're not living out our faith, then how can we really tell anyone else, this is what the power of God does. If the power, power of God is not sufficient to change us from our old sinful ways and bring us into the newness of life, and that's not in everything, but that is in most things. People often continue to struggle. Paul struggled. He had some things going on in his life that even at the end of his days, he he said, "A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He had some things that were still being worked on by the Lord. We're not talking about slippage. We're talking about immersion into sin. We're talking about willingly, knowingly being disobedient to the plain teaching of God's Word. The church needs to take a stand because the world is perishing. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And so tonight, uh, this time in in the church's history, roughly 312 to about 606 A.D., uh, in this particular region, it, it was a very faulty doctrinal church. It was in the middle of a of two groups of heretics, basically. Now, having said what I said earlier, obviously the the papal church, because this is the church that came about during this period of time. This was the rise of Augustine and of Augustinian theology, and the church itself has much to owe to Augustine of Hippo. But it was during that time that the papal church arose. It was the Roman church which would transform and become ultimately the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, the remnant of that church exists to this day, and to some degree, the same heresies that existed then, exist today in the Catholic Church. And so again, make the distinction. There are many wonderful, saved, Christ-honoring, godly members of the Catholic Church who love Jesus and are trusting Him alone, for their salvation those people are genuine believers but there are also millions upon millions tens of millions hundreds of millions who are absolutely lost because they believe that salvation comes by taking the sacraments of the church they believe that forgiveness of sin comes from a priest They believe that you can be absolved from that sin by doing what the priest tells you to do. They believe in papal infallibility, that when the pope speaks, the pope, in essence, at that time, is the literal mouthpiece of God. And so his words go into the same category as the word. That is heretical, because at the back... It simply says, cursed is he who adds to or subtracts from the words of this book. And whether you take that to mean the book of Revelation or the entire thing cover to cover, the result's the same. And so you cannot have a papal decree that is issued that takes the place of what this says. And there are hundreds of them that have been spoken over the centuries. And every last one of them is heretical. So if you're in that category of people that when the Pope speaks, God has audibly spoken, you're in trouble. That's millions, perhaps a billion people or more. I don't know, because I can't read hearts. Don't want to. Not trying to. So that papal church. I have... A sister-in-law who cannot take communion in the church that she attends with her husband simply because she has not gone through the catechism. I always thought that if you were of, of the body of Christ, you could participate in communion. But evidently there's a class you need to go to so that you can take communion. I did not know that. And I happen to know my Bible doesn't say that. So I can tell you that that is a false doctrine. It's not of God. And to deny somebody the opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper simply because they haven't been baptized into a specific group of people is heretical. How how about being charged? Oh, the going rate for a wedding is $10,000. Last time I looked, um, mm, probably can't back that one up with Scripture. Didn't see a price listing here in the back anywhere. Again, I'm drawing attention to the difference between a genuine believer in Christ Jesus and the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. The official doctrine of the Catholic Church is in grave danger because it is largely Heretical, And it keeps the same pagan practices that get started right here. Much of the European Union is still under the sway of a religious political alliance between a state church and the government. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. It's important if you understand European history, you'll understand that the Middle Ages as we know them, actually all the way up and through about 1200 or so AD, the Roman church basically ruled most of Europe. And it was in fact the Roman church that was responsible ultimately for carrying out the Crusades, which were heretical, they absolutely were not of God had nothing to do with bringing people to Jesus Christ, nor was the Spanish Inquisition something that God ordained, forcing people to uh, convert to Christianity or to be killed. You're not going to find that in here. What it says in here, that it is in fact, O Lord, your loving kindness that draws men unto repentance, not the sword. The combined second, third, and really part of the fourth churches fall into that area. The the church at Pergamos was actually the center for Caesar worship, or the imperial cult as it was known at that point in time. And in this symbol that's used here, Satan's throne, I believe is a direct reference to the commingling of the political and the religious into a single body. Now having said that, Should our country be once again turned back to its biblical moorings? Absolutely. But when you take the church and make it the governing organization, and the church starts doing things like organizing campaigns to see people put to death, and the church then becomes the method whereby people are delivered to capital punishment, and the church announces fines on people for not going to church or taxes them to go to church, there is a huge problem. And so this is that system. And if you had grown up in Europe, you would actually pay a church tax if you live in Europe. And in fact, that church would then be given to the authorized groups that are in Europe to pay for the churches. And so there was a commingling. So the church lost its power in areas of sin, and it defaulted to government. And the government lost its power to control the people without using the church to do so. And so it was a commingling of those two groups of people. There is one God, and he wants to be worshipped. That one God created us. He does not want to be simply the government. He he wants to be the, the king on the throne of our hearts. Man-made religion wages physical wars for world control, while God's true religion in Christ Jesus wages a war for the souls of people for salvation. You, You can't blend those two things. And in fact, Paul, as he wrote the book of Romans, made the distinction that there is no government in Romans 13, but that which God has appointed, and they do not bear the sword in vain. In other words, there's a place for the government to carry out war if necessary to protect the innocent. Law enforcement to protect the innocent. Those things are absolutely necessary in human society. Why? Because the hearts of man are deceitfully wicked and who can know them? Amen? Uh, you don't have to go to too much, uh, too far down the hill to figure out that, that mankind isn't always doing good. And so God established government to do that. He did not ever intend the church, to be the bearer of the sword. That's actually his job in the last days. He will rightly divide because he's perfect in his judgment and his justice. And so there's civil government, and there's supposed to be a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Man's religions have been historically employed uh, to, to even wield weapons in wars. The Crusades are a perfect example of that, and that absolutely can't be. Can you imagine... You know, somebody like myself, a pastor, someone who normally teaches the word of God, uh, then grabbing a sword and head, heading off to Jerusalem to, you know, to confront Sahal Adin and, uh, you know, try and drive him out of the city of Jerusalem, only to lose that battle, be forced to go to Echo, to where Sahal Adin gathers up a force of some half million uh, Arab soldiers, and they come and they battle, and were it not for the mercy of an Arab king all of the those from Britain would have been destroyed. They would have been killed. They were actually allowed to be set free. That's not God's plan for the church. That's his plan for civil government if war needs to be waged. And it is, in fact, not that kind of sword that we're supposed to wield. When you think of the things that, The papal church has been responsible for, as you all know, Connie and I had the privilege of of living in Austria uh, for almost a year. And as you travel around, when we talk of medieval castles or medieval times, uh, there's evidence virtually all over Europe. And in fact, the largest remaining fortress, medieval fortress in Europe is in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Fortress Hohen Salzburg, it was the headquarters not of a prince, not of a king, not of civil government. It was the headquarters of Bishop Beetroot. And Bishop Beetroot from that castle in Fortress Hohen Salzburg ruled with a greater iron fist than any ruler perhaps in all of Europe's history. And in fact, he was so good at torturing people there is a museum of torture that is in that castle because of the rule of a Catholic bishop. And in fact, ultimately, it resulted in peasant wars where the peasants got tired of starving to death while the Catholic priests and the Catholic bishops stayed inside of the Fortress Hohen Salzburg and ate all of the finest foods produced in the valley, and they actually ended up bombarding the Fortress Hohen Salzburg. And if you go in his bedroom, which is, by the way, larger than our, in our entire church facility, uh, the building, if you go in his bedroom, you will see the evidence of cannonballs that are still stuck into the wall. And so that's where the church can go when the church ceases preaching the gospel and becomes worried about which region we control or which people group is under our authority or how much money we have, of the world's gold resources currently, number one is China, number two is the United States, number three is the Holy See, the Vatican. I think there's something wrong with that. You see, the church itself is supposed to preach the gospel and be a light to the world. In order to do that, we must stand for truth. That is true. But that truth cannot be forced down anybody's throat. It wasn't forced down yours. Is there anybody in here who came to Christ because somebody put a gun to your head? Didn't think so. Yeah. Doesn't happen. If you did, it probably wasn't genuine faith that saved you. It was fear, and you made a decision based on fear. And perfect love casts out all fear. Amen? So this city, it's actually Pergamum at the time, about 45 miles north of Smyrna. So these, these churches are all in the same basic geographic region. It's Bergma, Turkey today, so if you look on a map, you can see it. It was a province of Asia. It became a province of Asia in about 133 BC. Augustus constituted that as a provincial province, provincial capital in that region. And so, again, this is a very prominent city, though not as large as Ephesus. Um, It was a very large trading center, like most of the major cities were at that time. And in this case, it was mostly agriculture, production of food. And that's where it becomes very important to this passage that we're looking at. Because what happened during that time was fairly clear from the historical evidence. The historical evidence indicated that of all these temples that were in this particular city, they basically were the the meat market of that region. And so if you wanted a healthy diet, you would have to trade either with people who had been in the pagan temples and worshiped there, or you would have to go into the pagan temples yourself. So if you wanted to get Lucille's barbecue, it was at the Temple of Zeus. Okay, It wasn't over at Victoria Gardens. Still praying for one to be here in Redlands, by the way. Pergamum began to persecute Christians because those Christians were saying, look, I'm not going to eat of that that meat. And what they were really saying was, we're willing to starve rather than eat of that meat. And so it drew attention to the fact that they believed that what happened in those particular places was not only against God, but they were willing to pay with their very health and, if necessary, their lives to say, look, we're not doing it. It isn't like we go to, you know, Vons or Albertsons or Stater Brothers today and we go pick up a slab of beef somewhere, come back to our house and cook it. If you wanted meat, they had no refrigeration at the time. Meat was either eaten immediately, which meant it was usually cooked fairly well done and eaten right then and there. It was dried into jerky, salted, or it spoiled And so in this case, they would simply barbecue it. You could come and get some that was offered to a pagan god, and you could take it home and consume it. Because you didn't have Mr. Frigidaire in in the living room. Back then, they lived in a one-room house, so the living room was also the bedroom. So when you look at this group of people, it's a great risk to them. It would be like you and I saying, I- I'm not going to shop at Stater Brothers because they, you know, they have some pagan views, and I'm not going to shop at Sam's Club, and I'm not going to shop at Costco, and I'm going to simply whatever I can subsist off of here in the mountains. So for us, that would be pine nuts because uh, <laughs> the only thing that grows around here, amen, not too much of that anymore. And so the Roman church got involved in this whole thing. They began to say, look, we'll kind of pretend to be Christians. But at the same time, we're actually okay with you going to Lucille's Barbecue at the Temple of Zeus. And oh, by the way, part of the worship there was sexual promiscuity and all kinds of perversion. So not only did you compromise that you were basically going to go worship so that you could have good food, but you would also then subject yourself to the sexual immorality that was rampant in those places. And so notice it says where Satan's thrown in, verse 13. For I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The church had become, in essence, a a, a, a satellite campus, if you will, of the Roman government, which permitted all this stuff, and so he's saying, look, you want to blend religion, you want to blend my name, in essence, with pagan practices, that's Satan's throne. Because there's an awful lot of people who like sexual promiscuity. There's an awful lot of people who like nice, juicy cuts of meat. Amen? And especially during that time, because they didn't have YouTube and Netflix. And you hold fast to my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The Roman governor of that province, much like Pilate, he was a Roman government governor, amen, he, he wielded the sword. Basically, if you didn't do what he said, it's a reason ultimately Jesus was able to be put to death, amen? He was put to death by a Roman edict. That's why he actually died. If you want to look at the vehicle which ultimately took him to the cross, Roman edict. It was Roman crucifixion. It was brought about by the Jewish Sanhedrin and the rulers Annas and Caiaphas, both high priests. But if you want to know who actually said, here's the piece of paper that says go kill Jesus, that was the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate is attached to the same group of people. They're in cahoots. Look, there is no God but Caesar. That was the pledge. If you were in the Roman world, you had to make that pledge in order to be a Roman citizen. There is no God but Caesar. Caesar allowed all kinds of other things to be done, but at the end of the day, there is no God but Caesar. Period. As long as you made that profession, and when it came time for a Roman triumph to go through your uh, your town, that's not a motorcycle, by the way, that's a parade when it got time for the Roman triumph to come come through, you were expected to go to the road, remove the rocks, throw your garments in the road, throw palm fronds in the road, and welcome Caesar as though he were God. That's why the picture that we're going to see on Palm Sunday is so important. That's what they were doing. They were bowing down to Jesus. They were saying, you are king. That was reserved only for Caesar in the Roman world. Period. Nobody else got that treatment. Satan's throne was likely a reference to the Roman court. And when you think of that, I think it's really important to look at the world that we live in today. Because there are an awful lot of things that are now legal that are absolutely ungodly. Amen? That's why the fight over traditional marriage is so important. It's one of the very few things left that are so strictly a thumb in the eye of God, so to speak, because he designed marriage, he presided over the first one, he declared what it is, it cannot and should not ever be between two men or two women or anyone but a man and a woman because God said so, okay, that's it. That is the definition as far as God is concerned. One man, one woman, for life, producing children, raising those children in the admonition, the training of God himself. That's God's actual plan. It's not a civil institution. It is a biblical institution. Man didn't invent it. So when someone says, well, I believe in civil marriage, you're actually saying that you believe than that God is unimportant and that government matters more. And the problem that the churches has, the problem has been silent on these matters. We've kind of stood by and allowed these, these things to happen. And so just like Pergamos, all of a sudden the government is exercising authority over chaplains in the United States Navy and saying that you cannot minister to a family who's lost their husband because you might talk to them about Jesus. Now, you can talk to them about a man having sex with a man, but you dare not talk to them about Jesus. That's wrong. Exactly what was going on in Pergamos. You can say anything you want as long as you don't preach the real Christ. We need to make sure that our doctrine is well mingled and stirred up, and whatever you believe is good, but just don't believe this whole Jesus thing. Let's put a whole bunch of other stuff in there, and everything becomes then okay. And I just tell you, right doctrine matters. Right doctrine matters. The, the, the plethora of doctrinal issues that are alive in our world today, that frankly are not only anti-God but they're actually not good for society either. The destruction of the nuclear family is the single most damaging thing that's going on in the world today. Because if you want to know why we have rampant inflation, you want to know why housing costs are driven up, you want to see why our economy is such a mess, you need look no further than the home. That's why we're in the mess we're in. From divorce to abortion The gay marriage, that is the destruction of the nuclear family. And so rather than having one man, one woman, like Connie and I, that have been married for the better part of 40 years, raising exactly two children, having one set of bills, paying taxes their entire life, doing all those things to support the things that we all use, consistently... Vibrantly, effectively, what you have is two or three broken homes to where now you have, instead of one set of parents, you have two, and you have children in both, and it is very inefficient, and it costs the government huge sums of money. And in fact, there's sufficient evidence for us to know that children who grow up in divorced homes, as I did, And those who stay in broken homes or single-parent homes end up with a higher degree of likelihood of divorce themselves, a higher likely degree of incarceration, less earning power, and ultimately even less happiness. And so God knew what he was doing. And so when you look at what's driven this, has it not been the sexual revolution of the 60s driving it? It was, well, you know, I mean, that's kind of an old fogey institution, this whole marriage thing. Let's just sleep with whoever we want to. And it's gone from that to marriage doesn't matter, to let's kill the babies, and now, hey, two guys are just as good as as a man and a woman. It is a progression that is from Satan's throne. Okay? Nothing different today. Matter of fact, it may be gaining speed again. These brave Christians took a stand against evil. We must take a stand against evil. We have to. Because if we won't, our children will pay the price for it. If we won't, this nation will pay the price for it. Because it's not long from that time when the country is turned over to that type of promiscuity that the end comes. It's happened in every civilization that's ever entertained it. The Greeks, the Romans, the Medes, the Persians, all of them went that same way. Blending paganism with daily life, that paganism takes over. It ends up in rampant immorality. That rampant immorality destroys the family. The destruction of the family leads to the destruction of the nation. It has never not happened Every time a nation's gone that way, the result has been the same. Fades from existence. Drops off the pages of humanity. A strong biblical conviction absolutely makes a difference. And in this case, it cost Antipas his life. You see, when we think about right doctrine, when we think about the way this should go, you know what, it's a lot easier to cave in, isn't it? It is. It is. You want to talk about ease of getting along, it's a whole lot easier to just ignore the problem. The problem is, the problem doesn't go away, the problem grows. And as the problem grows, what you thought you would get out of by simply ignoring the problem or letting all things just be as they are, after all, you want to be tolerant of everyone and everything. Is that not the mantra of our day? you got to tolerate everything. You need to be very politically correct, never make, never raise a distinction. You want to see that in action? Look at our, look at our school systems. Look at kids' sports. It's pathetic. Everybody's good. You can't run, but we're giving you a trophy anyway. Go have another couple of Twinkies. And the reason I'm saying this is it's important for us to understand that when you start living this way, there's no end to the degradation. Pretty soon there's no moral excellence. People no longer perform at their jobs. There's no reason to. We just treat everybody the same. All of a sudden, why do we need to be thrifty? The government will just pay my tab anyway. All these biblical principles are linked to a nuclear family. We work those things together to say, you know what? I want the very best for my family. And because I want the very best for my family, which includes my children, I want to give them the best opportunity. The best opportunity is for mom and dad to stay married. The best opportunity is for us to be wholly in love with each other. The best opportunity is for us to leave an inheritance to our children's children not burn up that inheritance trying to take care of wife number two and wife number three and house number three and house number four and car number 619 and so on and so forth. The destruction of the family through sexual immorality is what's killing our nation. I'm kind of done. You know what? The Lord is the judge of every church. And as we look at these things, you, you can see it very clearly. Righteous Right doctrine le- leads to righteous living. And, and so he knows the good in every church. He knows the bad in every church. He, he knows the church that has the right on doctrine. He knows the church that has doctrine that's gone wrong. And, and it's the pastor's job. To preach right doctrine, to teach right doctrine, to give the full counsel of God's word. And you know what? There are things in this Bible that we hold dear, that we hold as the word of God, that is that sharp sword that's two-edged. It's a battle sword, by the way. This isn't the short Roman sword. The sword that's used here is the Roman battle sword, which was someplace in a neighborhood of four or five feet long, sometimes as much as six, weighed in excess of 20 pounds normally. And if you got hit with it, you were getting cut in half. There was was a great distinction here. This sword was the end-all. It was the be-all. You got whacked with this. It won every single time. It goes on in verse 14. To say, I have these things against you. This is the two pieces of wrong doctrine. But I have the few things against you because there are those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And so it's very clear this commingling of the world and the church was never God's plan. And that happened during those dark ages. You could not tell the difference. You were just as likely to have a, you know, a nice fat bender party at the bishop's house as you were to have it in your own. The church was immoral, the church was indulgent, and the church did not stand for the real Jesus. The doctrine of Balaam is basically the combining of idolatry with immorality. And those two things, when in combination, are a deadly, deadly combination. They are the death to to every church. You cannot live like the world lives... And be like Jesus, you just can't. Balaam was a non-Israeli diviner, if you will. He led Israel into total idolatry, into immorality. And when he uses this word that we have translated immorality, it's it's a far greater uh, definition that we need to look at because he wasn't talking about just sex outside of marriage. And you know, there were two adult people that were not married to each other. He was talking about any sexual expression whatsoever outside of the bonds of marriage. That one, and it's actually the word that we use uh, as a root word for pornography. It's the Greek word poronia. And in that word, it it includes by definition also every version of homosexuality, every version uh, of sexual activity before, after and outside of marriage, it would include sexual imagery, television, movies, pornography of every flavor. It would have included every type of thing that is sexually immoral. And what the church has done is said, well, you know, I can tell you because I was involved in counseling a guy, I've even had a pastor, a Calvary pastor. Tell me that he really didn't see anything wrong with pornography because it was all in the mind. Tell that to the parents of the daughter that's involved in that. Tell that to that young lady when she's 30 or 40 years old and now is absolutely unable to have children because of what's happened to her physically because of the immorality. Tell her that. You see, the church at Pergamum just permitted these libertine doctrinal issues to just run free. They didn't confront immorality in the church. Uh, They wouldn't say, look, (laughs) we're not putting our stamp of approval on your gay marriage. We're not doing it. Throw us in jail. Do whatever you think you need to do. But I'm not presiding over it. They wouldn't say, look, you're living together, you're having sexual relations before you're married, you have to stop doing that, let's get to some premarital counseling, and let's make this right in the eyes of God. They wouldn't say that. They also would not say, you know what, it's not okay for you to sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you're married. It's not you figuring out how it works. It's sin, and it's going to destroy you, as all sin does. They would not say that. And I say to you today that a vast majority of the church is in exactly the same place, so much so. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, just recently United Methodist Church, all are permitting sexual immorality within their ranks. And in fact, in many cases, not just permitting it, they're ordaining people engaged in it. Church of Pergamos. Interesting story about Balaam because he's famous pretty much for one thing. He's the only guy in the entire Bible dumb enough to lose an argument with a donkey. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but when I think about an argument and you know winning a debate, you know whatever it is. When you get beat by a donkey, I ought to tell you something. But Balaam, uh, king of Moab, Moab, Balak hired Balaam to subvert Israel and and bring them into bondage under that perversion, and he was fairly successful. No wonder their religion was quite popular. When people blend these things together, it's pretty popular. The all-acceptant church that no longer holds to the holiness of God is very popular. It's like, well, you know, we can just do whatever we want. Basically, Balaam's thing was, if you can't curse them, you corrupt them. You work from inside the church. That's why Paul would write later. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That stuff gets inside the church, and before you know it, there's no difference between the church and the world. You can't tell. Can I tell you that a lot of the church is complicit by indifference? And when I say that, I simply mean that when you ignore problems that you can clearly see, you are actually giving your tacit permission for that to continue. When your kids come to you and say, you know, I just don't see anything wrong with it, and you say, well, you know, it's just teenage years, and you won't tell them the truth, you're complicit. You're allowing them to engage in things that you know will destroy them. you got to take a stand. Take that stand in love for sure. But take a stand. Be concise. Be direct. Speak the truth. You can't just be loving. You have to speak the truth in love. Amen? you got to have both pieces of that puzzle. The doctrine of Balaam kind of blended two things together that very clearly actually both of them were wrong the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was in some ways even more subversive and it was basically this they were they were Gnostics at their core and that simply meant that whatever you thought in your mind and believed was actually the only thing that mattered so if you had a relationship with somebody you weren't married to, as long as you considered yourself married to that person, well, you were, of course. Ever heard that excuse? Well, God sees us as married. I can tell you I've had dozens of people in my years of counseling who've come to me, well, God sees us as married. And I said, well, where's your marriage certificate? Well, God sees us as married. No, No, he doesn't. He does not see you as married. Marriage is a commitment. That commitment must be testified to for it to be validated. Can it mean that you know you you couldn't uh, somehow go grab somebody and perform? That? I guess you could. But well, marriage is a commitment between two people for life. And if you really are in that commitment, why not make it public? But the Nicolaitans believed that all that mattered was what you thought about it. We we call that. Uh, existentialism we, we call that situational ethics uh, we look at those things and we would say well that's somebody who just believes it's true and because it's true to them it's true that's not God's truth because there are a lot of things that we believe very wholeheartedly that are not God's truth Amen? there are an awful lot of people as Mark Twain wisely said you want to know how to spot e- idiots just look for a large group of like-minded carousers Amen. (laughs) You walk into a bar, what do you find? A bunch of like-minded, carousing people. And they all think everything's fine. But what you really found is a pocket of idiots, in a general sense. I realize there might be a designated driver in there who loves Jesus. I don't know. I'm not trying to judge every person who's ever been into a bar. But I am saying, when you find a whole bunch of people who believe the same thing, that doesn't mean what they believe is truth. It could very much and very easily be a lie. That was what the Nicolaitans believed. They believed in a syncretism that blended Christianity with false doctrine with pagan living. It only matters what I think in my heart. For all this body is mortal, this body's made of dust, it doesn't matter what you do with it, it's only the soul that's eternal. So as long as my soul's okay, I can do whatever I want with my body. That is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and it's from hell. Because it leads people to hell. Because ultimately, if the Holy Spirit in you, which is part of being saved, amen, isn't powerful enough to defeat sin, isn't powerful enough to give you victory in those areas, isn't powerful enough to change your life and cause the renewing of your mind, as Scripture says will happen, doesn't mean everything gets perfect, but it does mean you start going the other way, amen? If you're not going the other way, then how do you have any conviction whatsoever that what you believe is truth? You don't. And the fact is, you probably aren't saved. Now, again, I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying, you're not going to know if what you're supposed to be, you are not. Amen? I, I wouldn't know. If one of the ways that I know that I'm saved, which it is one of the ways I know that I'm saved is by the renewing of my mind, repentance, my life is being transformed and renewed day by day into the image of Jesus. That's what happens to Christians, amen? If there's none of that going on, then how do I know that I've ever received Christ? I don't. So at the very best, I have zero assurance that I'm saved. At the very worst, there's also no evidence that I'm saved. You can't keep your sin and claim Christ. You can't. Does it mean you have to walk in perfection to be saved? Absolutely not. But you should try. You absolutely should be trying. That means you hate what God hates. You love what God loves. Your life gets transformed. All of a sudden, you're living a different way. When I look back at my life the way I was before I I got saved, I am not the same person. Do I still have some things that God's working on? Yeah, all of us do. But I am not the same person. I don't even think the same way anymore. Brains being controlled by the Holy Spirit. I have that little check in my heart, as do all of you. When you know what you're supposed to be in Christ Jesus, the minute, the minute you go to transgress that, you know what happens. mm mm That's the Holy Spirit in you, convicting you of sin and of righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit says, this is what's wrong, and this is what's right. You see, during this time, hey, let's just go to the temple, enjoy some temple prostitutes, and get some barbecue. Now, when I say that, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? And yet, if you get enough people doing the same thing and calling it Christianity, they likely believe that that was Christian. That's why what's happening in some of these major denominations is so tragic. They likely believe that it's Christian. There will be people drawn away. They will think that that marriage between two men is okay with God. It's not okay with God. God's Word plainly declares that. That's not my opinion on the matter. That's what God put in His Word about that issue. It's not for us to decide. It's for us to do. There is nothing to decide in in Christianity about this issue. Gay marriage is wrong. Period. 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 It's not a debatable issue. No church should be engaged in gay weddings because they are damning those people to think that God approves of it when His Word says exactly the opposite. Read Romans chapter 1. Read it. Read 1 Corinthians 6. If you can figure out how it's okay To permanently align yourself with something that God says is the evidence that you will not inherit the kingdom of God and say that you are still a child of God. If you can figure that theological conundrum out for me, please come straighten out my theology. But you can't. It's impossible. Because if that were true, then God needs to resurrect every single person that he destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah bring them back to life, and say, I made a mistake. He's not going to do it. He cannot have a standard then that is not applicable now. He can't. He changes not. That's what he said about his character, amen? He didn't have, as the world shouts today, well, you know, things have changed. You ever heard that about this issue? Things have changed. We now understand, you know, it's a genetic disposition towards these things and blah, 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 blah. Not from God's perspective, he couldn't care less what you re-engineered about genetic makeup of humankind. Because, number one, there is no evidence, none, zero evidence, that we have any understanding that there's a genetic disposition towards homosexuality. There's none. There's no evidence. What we've done is what we call reverse engineering, just like if Ford wants to steal a Buick, they grab a Buick, they tear the whole Buick apart, they find out how a Buick is made, and then they can go make a Buick. It's the same thing with humankind, with the human genome. And in fact, the world's premier geneticist has said that he is a believer in Christ. For the plain and simple reason, the complexity of it all. You can't have one standard here and another standard there. It's false doctrine. That was the danger of the Nicolaitans. They basically said, you know what, all roads ultimately lead to heaven. It's fine, just do whatever you want. God will all sort it out in the end and everybody goes to heaven. We call that universalism in our theology. That there is no distinction. Basically, every Muslim's going to heaven. Every Hindu is going to heaven. Every Buddhist is going to heaven. Every animist is going to heaven. Every New Ager is going to heaven. There is nothing for us to believe in because God doesn't care. Simply not true. Scripture plainly declares that. Jesus was the most intolerant doctrinal person who ever walked the face of the earth, and all you need to know is John 14:6 to prove it. Amen. I am singularly one person, with the emphasis on who he was, Yahweh Adonai Lord of hosts. He was and is because he was the one who was and is and is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Amen. Before the beginning, after the end, he's still going to be there. He said, "I am the way." the singular truth and the life and that no one comes to the father but by him that is absolutely exclusive it's not syncretistic it's not tolerant in any way shape or form doesn't mean that you be mean doesn't mean that you be rude it just simply means it's truth And if it's truth, there can't be two competing truths. Amen? By default, if you are here today and you you happen to believe in logical thinking, you cannot have two competing truths and both of them be true. By definition, there can only be one truth about a singular issue. So if there is such a thing as salvation, there can only be one way. Because Jesus said there's only one way, one truth, one life. Biblical Christianity is the only religion on earth that, that teaches that truth. He said it, he provided for it. They believed at that time that there were other ways to get to heaven. And Jesus plainly says, look, sola scriptura. What it says, I wrote it, I authored it through the Holy Spirit to men, that's what I mean. He finishes up by reminding us that we need to repent or else. And again, doesn't mean he's going to kill everybody who has some messed up, messed up doctrine. That's not what he's talking about. But he is saying that doctrine matters. If you have an ear here, you have to use that system of perfection and, per, and perception that you have. We, we understand what God's word says. We then need to perceive how to apply it. A system of perception is no good unless you use it. Amen? It's easy to prove. That's the reason you don't put a blindfold on and then walk into traffic. A system of perception, which your eyes are, is no good unless you use it. Same thing is true with biblical truth. If you know biblical truth, you hear it from the word, you have now imparted it into your heart and your mind, it does you no good if you do not then go out and live it. And so he simply says, to him who overcomes, to him who believes it to live it out, I'm going to give you two final things. And he, he basically is saying to us, look, as, as, you, as you live your life for me, you're going to be fine. I'm going to give you some hidden manna. I'm going to speak into your heart those truths. I'm going to give you a white stone. And a white stone in scripture almost always is exclusive, speaking of eternity. Do you know that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? Your name's inscribed in heaven. It's been taken care of by the blood of Christ. Because you passed from death unto life, you're now one of those white stones. You now have hidden men, and you understand. That's why Paul said spiritual things are spiritually appraised. The carnal mind can't know them. You get some hidden bread. There are things that you as a believer understand the world does not understand. And we have that intimacy with the Lord. We have a connection with Him that non-believers don't have. He gives us that special relationship. There are things that I understand. When we talk about praising the Lord, you know what people who don't know the Lord Jesus think when they see us raising our hands and praising God and screaming out His name and shouting it from the mountaintop and saying, Thank you, Lord? They think we are nuts. They think it's, you know, the music's not that good. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's not like Led Zeppelin or anything, you know. You, you see, they say things like that because they don't have the hidden manna. They don't take in the bread of life. They don't know what it means to be a believer in Christ. So when they see us living out a Christ-like existence on this earth, they're going, "What in the world is that? Those people are crazy." When you say to a Christian, "Yeah, I talked to the Lord this morning," you ever had anybody look at you like you got like you know the biggest zit ever in the <laughs> middle of your forehead? They look at you like you are absolute. What is wrong with you? You talk to God. You know, they're dialing 911. Mr. Straight Jackets coming your way. It's because they don't get it. No hidden manna. They don't understand that you actually have a direct line through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the, ad, the, the advocate before the Father, every second of your existence while you're on this earth, you can talk to God. And he hears your prayers. That's hidden manna. To him who overcomes, we have things the world doesn't have and does not understand. They think we're a little touched. That's okay. What we want to do is share that truth with them in such a way and stand for truth. You see, if the church stops standing for truth, why would the world want to be like us? You can go find all the heathens you want. You don't have to go very far. Amen? And again, I'm not being condemning, actually. I'm just simply saying, you can find plenty of people who don't know Jesus. Amen? You don't have to go very far to do that. Parking lot, probably. It's going to be one or two out there, I'm sure. Somebody walking down the street, you can find somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and you talk to them about the deep things of God, they're going to think you are off your... You think they're off their rocker because they've been doing drugs. They think you're off your rocker because you actually believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That white stone in John's day. Actually, there's an interesting thing that happened. One of the two ways that the high priest would use their powers of, of in essence, hearing from God, was they would have a simple yes or no answer. And they had a black stone and a white stone that they kept with the ermum and the thumum inside of their cloak. And so one was several stones that had different abilities to, to discern. The other was just simply a white one and a black one. And you can guess what the black one was. It was like, no way, Jose. Done. It's over with. But the white one was winner. To him who overcomes. I'm going to give you a special intimate relationship with the Lord. The crown of life we've already seen. So you don't want to blend the church and religion into one entity. You definitely don't want to blend the world and the church into one entity. And you absolutely do want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can have these two rewards. That hidden manna. And to know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That white stone comes up every time it gets thrown. You'll never get a black one. You're going home to be be with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. And God, we just simply ask uh, that you would work in our hearts and our minds by the power of the Spirit. Lord, help us to know how to minister to those around us. Lord, help us to be... Uh, Ever vigilant with the truth. God, it's not to be mean spirited or angry towards people, but to stand. When everyone else bows, Lord, would we be like Daniel? Would we be the last one and, if necessary, the only one standing? God, for your truth. Lord, we know that's going to get tough. It's going to get hard. It's going to be difficult. But it's a badge of honor, Lord. We'd like to be like Antipas, martyred for our faith. And that's not a death wish, Lord. That's just simply to say that we are so different from the world that if necessary, uh, we would consider, as Paul said, our lives counted as loss for knowing the excellency of you. So we bless you. We praise you. We honor you. Lord, we give you our lives again just simply in freshness, Lord. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.